Welcome to West Hills. <clears throat> My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, on behalf of all of us, it's uh, so great to have you, whether you're, you're brand new, got to meet a couple first-time um, guests or visitors, um, or whether you're coming back for the first time in a while. Um, it's so wonderful to have you with us. Um, we have been studying our way this uh, year since March through the Gospel of Mark in a series we've entitled Rooted, because Mark wants to root us deeper in the gospel and the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And uh, we've more or less followed um, Mark's chronology, although uh, we've skipped around a bit. I've grouped some similar stories together into a few uh, topical sort of mini-series within the series. And so we spent two weeks on Jesus versus demons. We spent three weeks on Jesus and healing. Uh, and this morning is another part two uh, sequel sermon of sorts uh, in our topical study of Jesus's miracles. So last week we looked at Jesus's calming of two separate storms in chapters four and six, and this morning we're going to examine Jesus's uh, two separate feedings of thousands, of the masses in chapters six and eight. And we're going to discover that not only does Jesus use the physical laws of our world, as he did in the story of the storms, oceanography and meteorology to bring about his own sovereign purposes by commanding the pow his power over the wind and the waves. But Jesus actually rewrites the laws of physics when necessary in order to cause them to bend to his own power and will. And so in, this, in, in, in some ways, this morning's passages are the most mind-blowing of all of Jesus' miracles because storms are known to quiet down. And diseases can be healed and demons can be exercised, but instantly turning one fish into two identical fish, spontaneous cloning, defies the basic law of conservation of mass. But as I said last week, if we interpret these passages merely as stories about Jesus' power over the physical world, I think that we will miss the point. Once again, I want to suggest this morning that these passages are not just about Jesus' past ability and desire to feed people's bodies, but they're meant to point us to his present tense ability and desire to feed our souls and meet a much deeper need. So often in biblical interpretation, we get hung up on questions of whether or not a story is meant to be taken literally or metaphorically, figuratively, when so often the answer is both. It's not either or, but both and. Jesus literally, physically did these miracles and fed thousands with a few loaves and fishes, and yet he did it primarily as proof that he really was the Son of God and that he's able to perform an even greater and more urgent miracle that you and I desperately need, regardless of our physical appetites, and that is to spiritually feed our souls. But in order to be fed this morning, we must do four things. And so you'll notice your sermon title are four steps to being fed. And if that title sounds weird to you, like I'm an adult, why would I need to be fed? I've been feeding myself for as long as I can remember now, and then this sermon is especially for you. I'm glad you're here. So would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 6, 
verses 33 through 44, and then Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We'll figure out if the screen's going to work or not. This is just another reason to bring your good old-fashioned hard copy Bibles with you on Sundays. You never know when that screen's going to go out. So, uh, Mark chapter 6, I'll read it for us, starting in verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, Jesus saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. They were satisfied. Sorry. They had a few small fish. He blessed them. He gave it. They set it before them. And he ate, and they were satisfied. Verse 8. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you this morning. Father, we come here hungry. Whether we recognize it or not, we fill up on spiritual junk food in the world throughout the week. We're hungry. We need to hear from you this morning. So God, I pray that my words would be few your words would be many. 
I pray that just as you fed thousands 2,000 years ago by the lake in Galilee, this morning your Holy Spirit would come once again, be amongst us, and feed a few hundred here at West Hills. We're hungry. We wait with anticipation for your provision for us this morning. Would you feed us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So four steps to being fed. Step number one is we have to recognize that we're hungry. We start real simple here. You don't eat unless you're hungry. Now, we might dispute that assumption in 21st century America. Sometimes today we eat because we're bored or because it's 6.30 p.m. and that's what we do at supper time. Or if you're like me because there's three-week-old three ham in the fridge that your wife's about to throw away and uh, you don't like wasting food. And so we have all sorts of different reasons we eat today, but... Back then, 2,000 years ago, and for most of the world's population today, none of those factors affected their eating habits. And so let's just grant the premise here, premise number one, that in order to be fed, to eat, first you need to recognize that you're hungry. That's how both these stories start in Mark 6 and Mark 8. Look at Mark 6, verses 33 to 34. Now many saw the disciples going, they were sailing, We hear actually just before this, they were trying to escape the crowds and get a moment's reprieve and some downtime, quiet time. But the crowds saw them, they recognized them, they ran there ahead of them on foot from all the towns. Why? Because the crowds were hungry. They were hungry for more of Jesus. They were hungry for more of his miracles. We know from the parallel account of this story in Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, Matthew tells us that Jesus was also healing their sick. So they wanted more of Jesus's healing, his restoration. But what else are they hungry for? What is Jesus primarily doing for them here in verse 34? It says he began to teach them many things. They're hungry for Jesus' teaching, for his word, for his wisdom. So hungry that they stay there all day long. After having left in a hurry from home to catch up to Jesus and having failed to pack a dinner. And so now they're caught in this desolate, remote place in verse 35. And what do the disciples say? Jesus, it's late. These people are starting to get hungry. It's desolate out here. There's, there's not even a McDonald's around, so you know you're in the sticks. You've got to send these people away so they can go buy some food. They're hungry. And the crowds in chapter 8 are even hungrier because we hear in verse 2 that they've been listening to Jesus for three straight days now. Now, I am no Jesus, obviously. And even the great apostle Paul had to learn this lesson the hard way You remember uh, what happened the time that the Apostle Paul tried to preach through just one night straight in Acts chapter 20, and he bored the guy to sleep, and the guy fell out the window, and he died. Remember that story, Eutychus? That's why our windows don't open or close in here. (laughs) 
But do me a favor, if I ever start to drone on a little bit up here and your tummy starts to growl, you just need to remember that I have biblical precedent to go for three days straight if I need to. Maybe only Jesus gets to do that, I don't know. But God's word is that important. And Jesus' word is so good, they're so spiritually hungry for it, that they haven't even noticed that they've gone three whole days without eating. But now their physical hunger is starting to catch up to their spiritual hunger, so much so that Jesus acknowledges in verse 3 that if I send them away to their homes, they won't even make it all the way home. They're going to faint along the way. Have you ever been hungry? That hungry, like you, you thought you were going to faint. Now, admittedly, some of our brothers and sisters in parts of Africa, Asia, Central South America, they're going to, they're going to hear this passage very differently than we will this morning, and yet there is some relativity when it comes to hunger. We get used to eating three meals a day. So even if for you that means being a few hours late for a meal, any of y'all get hangry, like my wife. My wife is the sweetest person you will ever meet until she misses a meal. We had to stop fasting together as a couple because I was too emotionally sensitive for it. She, things start coming out that normally she's able to keep buried down on a full stomach. In my youth ministry days, we used to lead students through World Vision's 30-hour famine. And by the end, you would have thought that most of them were on death's doorstep after 30 hours. And you laugh, but you try it. We are so dependent on our physical sustenance, aren't we? Fasting is meant to remind us of that neediness, just how dependent, how reliant we are on our daily bread. And yet, what did Jesus pray when he had gone without food for 40 days in the wilderness and was being tempted by Satan? Matthew 4.4, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can you imagine going 40 days without food. Jesus was fully God, but he's fully man too. Jesus did not give up his humanness here. Imagine fasting for 40 days and yet proclaiming, I still need God's spiritual sustenance just as much as I need his physical provision. I think our problem so often in 21st century America is that so few of us even know what need is anymore. We've all heard, you know, in secular psychology, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. Jesus puts it this way in Mark 2.17. He says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Tim Keller says, all you need is need. But the problem in our society is that we become so good at masking our needs that it's hard for us to even recognize what it, what it feels looks like to need anymore. Anything. To need anything. You want food? Open the fridge. You want health care? Vote for that candidate. You want affirmation? Post to Facebook and just wait for the likes. Want sex? Swipe right. Or click here. It's free at your fingertips. And it's not that these things are bad. Not all of them, anyways. It's great that people aren't starving to death all around us. We have full refrigerators. But our culture of comfort does have this unintended consequence 
of making us blind to even our deepest needs, our spiritual need for God. What about you? Are you hungry this morning? What do you need today? In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Cortazo, the same word he uses here in chapter 6, verse 42, chapter 8, verse 8. For the crowds, they were satisfied, they were full. I don't know about y'all, but I will be honest with you this morning. I, I skipped quiet times this past week. I had a busy week. I made excuses. And I had days where I didn't open my Bible first thing in the morning. And I want that to not be okay for me. I want, to, I want that to throw my entire day off, my entire week off, because I'm so spiritually dependent on spending that time with the Lord. And praise God that that is more true of me today than it was a few years ago. Man, I, I don't know about y'all, I, I feel it those days when I skip a spiritual meal. It, it makes for a rough day sometimes, a rough week. I hope that's true for you too, that you're that spiritually dependent on the Lord by God's grace and through our own spiritual discipline, 1 Timothy 4, 7, we've got to train ourselves for godliness that's my prayer for myself, for you all in the years to come, that we'll be so dependent on God's word, so hungry for righteousness that we wouldn't be able to stand going a day without spending that time with him, our quiet time. What about you? Maybe you're here this morning because you just started to recognize that hunger, your need for something more. From the outside looking in, from the world's perspective, Maybe you've got everything you could possibly ever want, much less need. Great family, great career, great friends, financial security, you name it. But something still feels missing. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And as cheesy as it sounds, I believe God really does design us with a God-shaped hole in our hearts such that, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in him. Friends, recognize that you're hungry this morning. All the money, the possessions, the family, the friends that you could ever dream for in this world will die, they will rust, you cannot take them with you, You'll leave them behind. Only one thing survives the grave. Only one person. And step number two to being fed is that we must admit that we can't feed ourselves. Admit you can't feed yourself. Chapter 6, verses 36 and 37. Look at the disciples' advice here. This miracle doesn't even need to happen. The disciples told Jesus, send them away, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus could have just let them go and 
buy their own dinner. Why didn't he? Because this story isn't just literal. Jesus is trying to make a deeper point here for them, a word picture of their spiritual need and how that need must be met, must be provided for. Jesus instructs them, you feed them dinner. And the disciples' response, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's eight months' wages for a typical worker back then, maybe $20,000 today. Jesus, are you joking? We're homeless. Luke 9, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We're following you. We're homeless. And you already told us 10 verses ago in Luke chapter 9, two, 10 verses before this, not to carry any money or food with us. That was your instruction. And now you're asking us to, to front the $20,000 to go out and buy food for 5,000 people. Actually, it's not 5,000 because Mark says it's 5,000 men and Matthew specifies for us there are many more women and children. So maybe 20,000 people? There's no way we can feed all of them. And the situation is even worse in chapter 8 because the crowd has now gone three days without food. So even if they wanted to feed themselves in chapter 8, they pass out on the trip back home for dinner. And keep in mind, too, that the little food that they do have, their loaves here, this was a little flatbread thing in the ancient Near East, okay? This is not a subway footlong. Together with the small fish, this was just enough food for a single lunch for a small boy, which is exactly whose lunch we hear it was in the parallel account in John chapter 6. 20,000 people, enough food for one person. They are in trouble. And friends, maybe you've come here this morning recognizing that you have a need, but you haven't yet admitted that you're in trouble because it's a need that you cannot meet yourself. That's step two. And it might be the biggest obstacle to the spread of the gospel in our culture today, because even when we do acknowledge that, man, I just, I want more out of life than I'm currently experiencing, how often is our next step to try a little harder, to do more, to make more, so we can buy the bigger house, go on the longer vacation. Even if I do have a need, I can fix it. I'll read a self-help book. I'll go to therapy. There's an app for that, a YouTube video for that. We're a fix-it culture. I've said it before, there's nothing more un-American than the gospel. Because what is more American than the American dream? If you believe it, you can achieve it. With enough hard work and effort, you can do anything that you put your mind to. You can be anyone you want to be. And here comes Jesus saying, no, you can't. No, you really can't. You can't save yourself spiritually, eternally. You can't earn heaven. You can't be good enough to do that. Matthew 5, you think you're good enough? Have you ever lusted? You've committed adultery in your heart. You ever been angry, ticked off? You've committed murder in your heart. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless you're perfect, Matthew 5, 48, heaven is not for you. Heaven is for perfect people. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
Why? Because children know that they can't feed themselves. My daughter is as self-reliant, headstrong, independent woman as they come, but she knows there are some foods she doesn't even bother trying to eat by herself because she knows there's no way in heaven her mom is going to let her eat that spaghetti and that brand new fancy dress by herself. Not going to happen. She needs to be fed. And friends, maybe you're here this morning because you've been trying to feed yourself for a really long time now and you're tired. You're exhausted. That's not working. Trying to keep up with the Joneses because where are the Joneses? They're always a step ahead. You ask the richest man in the world, John Rockefeller, how much money is enough and what's the answer? Just a little more. Maybe you've been trying to cover over and fill that God-shaped void in your own heart with all sorts of different things. I don't know what it is for you. It's not money. Relationships, work, entertainment, food, alcohol, pills. I don't know. Maybe you're finally realizing this morning, this is a hunger I cannot satisfy. This is a thirst I cannot quench on my own. There's no sadder character in the Bible than the rich, young ruler in Mark chapter 10, who we're going to study here in a few weeks together. So we'll have a whole sermon on him, so I won't spoil it here, but can you imagine being rich, money, ruler, power? And remember the exchange with Jesus? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all the commandments. He's self-righteous. He's a rule follower. He's got it all. Rich, ruler, rule follower being told by Jesus, there's no place for you in the kingdom. There's no place for you in my kingdom. You're healthy. You're not sick. You can't buy your way in. Can you imagine how sad he must have been walking home, sitting on his gold-encrusted crown? Probably never felt smaller than that day after talking to Jesus. His money never felt more worthless. His gold star church attendance award never felt more futile. Friend, if you're tired here this morning of trying to feed yourself, of trying to impress others by how together your life is, you can come fall in the arms of the one who's actually able to fill that void in your heart. The one who, number three, is able and willing Step number three, after you've recognized you're hungry, you've admitted that it's a need you can't fill, step three is realize that Jesus alone is able and willing. First of all, he's able. We've witnessed this time and time again, so many different passages, different contexts, Stories over the past few weeks now. Jesus is able. He's able to cast out demons. He's able to heal sicknesses. He's able to restore sight to the blind, sound to the deaf, life to the dead. He is able to calm storms. He's able to turn one fish into two fish, red fish into blue fish. And he's able to feed 20,000 with a single lunch. And more importantly, he's able to make the spiritually dead come alive. He is able to save us from us. Friends, we are not the solution. We're the problem. Do you realize that? It's our sin. It's my sin. It's your sin 
that created this infinite spiritual chasm between us and a holy, perfect God in the first place. It's kind of like um, if you've seen that new tongue-in-cheek safe auto commercial. Sorry, Scott. Uh, but where the, the, the fake infomercial lady says, don't get stains out, get everything else in. Have you seen that where the guy spills guacamole on the white couch? And instead of trying to remove the stain, she tells him to just spray this stain matcher on it and turn the whole couch neon green. That doesn't sound right, but Safe Auto can get you a free quote on car insurance. We are the guacamole spillers. We cannot get that stain out. We can't clean it up. Isaiah 64, 6 says all our best deeds are like dirty rags. You're just wiping more guacamole on the couch. That is not going to get it clean. But Jesus can. He's able. He's able. And what's even more shocking is that he's willing, he wants to do it. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Why would he want to? Why would he he look down from heaven, from the perfections of heaven? God was fully self-sufficient. God had no needs, no, no, no wants. And yet he saw something in me, something in you, worth loving, worth saving, worth dying for to make it happen. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Because what's the most powerful word in either of these passages in Mark 6 and Mark 8? What's the most powerful word Compassion. Compassion. Jesus isn't just able. He's not just willing. He is compassionate. Splanknidzomai is a fun Greek word we should all know. Splanknidzomai. You want to say it with me? Splanknidzomai. Literally, he is moved in his bowels. He is gut-wrenched for the crowds here and for you, for me. Speaking of commercials, Jesus looks at us the same way that we look at those starving children with their bloated stomachs out and flies swarming around their faces in those commercials late at night. That's how he looks at us unless and until we've come to him for salvation by faith. You are that starving and desperate. Your situation is that dire. Others might see you as successful, beautiful, perfectly put together, idyllic, white picket family, fence, achiever, whatever. But 1 Samuel 16, 7, God looks on the heart. And unless he's looking at his own heart, his own Holy Spirit, who now resides in your heart, Because he's already performed open heart surgery and removed your heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. Unless you've been born again, then what God sees when he looks at your heart is brokenness, is death, enslavement to sin, and it moves him to his core, to his bowels. He aches, he yearns to see you turn from your sin to him for freedom. 
for healing, for reconciliation, for renewal, for peace, for joy, for hope. You can be made new today, friends. You can be fed if you're spiritually hungry today. You don't have to eat the spiritual junk food of the world anymore. If you will, but turn to Jesus in faith. And that's step number four. Step number four is to taste and experience in Jesus God's fulfilling provision. Experience Jesus' fulfilling provision. I like the word fulfilling because I think it's the closest English translation to the Greek word cortazo here in 642 in chapter 8, verse 8. The ESV renders it satisfied. But it's more than that. It's more than being filled Cortazo means being fulfilled. According to John MacArthur, it was a term that was used in animal husbandry to refer to feeding the livestock until they wouldn't eat anymore. Have you all ever watched livestock eat? I know we're all West County people here. I'm from the country, West Tennessee. And moreover, I, I own a dog who was the runt of her litter and who struggled early in life with food insecurity. She ate everything she could get her paws on. She was constantly begging for table scraps, nosing her way into trash cans and cabinets. So the vet recommended we buy her the biggest bowl we could find and keep her food filled up to the brim all the time. And he said, she'll eat till she vomits for a day or two. And then she'll realize she's got all the food she needs and she doesn't have to be worried. She'll learn to self-regulate. And sure enough, day one, Bentley ate seven and a half cups of food in one setting. She went outside, she puked, she pooped three times, she came inside, she stank up the whole house, ate three more cups, went back out, puked again. But by day two, He was right. She's learned her lesson. She'd realized, I've got all that I could ever need, want. Friends, that's cortazo. That's the kind of fulfilling provision that Jesus offers us this morning. Abundant, extravagant, uncontainable, spilling over the brim of the bowl grace that Jesus offers offers us. You can't outsend his grace. Do you believe that this morning? You can't outsend his grace. You think you've used it all up. There's no way God could still love me, could still forgive me after what I've done. And you hang your head in shame. You look back down at the bowl by God. Jesus has filled it back up again. You can't outrun his grace. You try and outrun it. You stray. He's a good shepherd. John 10. He knows his own. He comes after them. Matthew 18, he leaves the 99 to come find you. And friends, you won't get tired of his grace. It never runs out. Every other idol in your heart will leave you wanting more, will leave you feeling empty, like John Rockefeller. Even the good idols, the noble, you know, idols, relationships. If you've made your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your kids, parents, if you've made them your own personal Messiah, your own personal Savior, if you're accounting 
on another sinful, screwed up human being to give you your identity, your worth, your love, your affirmation, your validation, to fulfill you. Be prepared to be massively disappointed. That is not fair to them. That is a burden that no one should have to carry except the one whose shoulders were built for it. There's so much more that we could point out about these two passages. They're so rich. Wish I had another half hour. We could point out the humor of Mark chapter 8, verse 4. The fact that the disciples are dumbfounded about you know, questioning how Jesus is going to feed the crowd despite the fact that they witnessed him perform the exact same miracle a chapter and a half earlier, chapter 6. And yet how often do we forget God's faithfulness in the past when we're presently going through some struggle in life. We could note the overtones, should note the overtones of the Lord's Supper here. Look at the language Mark uses. Having blessed the bread, he broke it. and Jesus gave it to them. It's the exact same wording. This is a prefiguring of communion that we're going to celebrate in a moment together. A foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate spiritual provision for us in his atoning sacrificial death on the cross for our sake. We could even speculate about why Jesus organizes them into groups of hundreds and fifties. It's a fun question. I've got some, uh, some theories I could try out on you, but I want to end with this. These crowds in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8, they're going to eat for one more night because of Jesus' miracle, but they're going to wake up hungry again in the morning. Twelve hours later, they'll be hungry again. And friends, whatever substitute you're using this morning to try and fill that God-shaped hole in your heart, it may temporarily fill your needs, satisfy your hungry hunger. You can fill up for a moment on Doritos. You can go to sleep not hungry, but you will wake up again hungry in the morning. But hear the words of Jesus, the promise of Jesus from John chapter 6 this morning. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Don't you want that kind of food? Don't you want that kind of water? Like the woman at the well, Lord, give me that kind of drink to drink. Jesus promises us eternal satisfaction, cortazzo, fulfillment, and our hearts will indeed be restless and at best only partially temporarily filled until they find their rest and their fulfillment in him. Amen. Let's pray.